Well, if you have your Bibles, please take them and turn with me uh, for a short time to the third chapter of the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John, John chapter 3. A familiar story as we read the first eight verses. The Lord Jesus Christ has begun ministering in Israel and we read this account that happens. John 3, starting in verse 1. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you've come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? He can't enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it's going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. What is the requirement that Jesus gives for entering into the kingdom of God? It is that someone must be born again, regenerated. They must receive a new heart. They must become fundamentally a different person, not simply in their outlook on life, but in their actual entire spiritual state. You must be born, Jesus says, of the Spirit of God, born from above, born again. There is, of course, the life that we have when we come into this world. Everyone who is in the world has been born. And yet, we must be born a second time. We must be born again. And this speaks to the fact that something has to happen to us in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. All too many people today assume that if they are simply born into this world and do enough good things or perhaps avoid enough bad things, then there is an automatic destiny that they'll end up in the kingdom of God. That some future realm that's better than this one in some way, even though they couldn't tell you what it is or why, some future realm awaits them that they will go to heaven when they die. Jesus says there's a condition for that. And the condition is you have to have a change in your heart. Your entire heart must be changed. The thing that he describes here is the same thing as the Old Testament concept of receiving a new heart or even the idea of having your heart circumcised as it's described in Ezekiel chapter 36. You must become an entirely new person spiritually speaking. But if you do, then you will enter into the kingdom of God. Jesus elsewhere said that unless you repent 
and are converted and become like little children, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Something has to happen to us, and that is that along with what he's saying here, or in line rather with what he's saying here, a person has to be converted in order to enter the kingdom of God. You must be converted. Your soul must be changed. Your heart must be changed. Your entire nature must be changed or you will not enter the kingdom of God. This is a vital truth at the heart of what we do as a church. And that's exactly what we're talking about in these recent weeks. What do we do in ministry as a church? We have looked so far at the ideas of a high view of God and how we need to view him and how that affects our ministry. And a high view of his word. What does it look like when we view the Bible as the Bible describes itself? How does that affect the way that we serve? How does that affect the way that we reach out to the world? How does that affect the way we relate to one another? And last time we saw that the gospel of Jesus Christ, his death, his burial, his resurrection for the forgiveness of sins on behalf of sinners is at the heart of everything that we do. But the question before us today is, how do people respond to that gospel? How must people respond to that gospel? How does it happen? And what happens to a person when they do respond to that gospel? How does it come about that a person would respond? And what happens to that person once they have responded? It's a question about what we call conversion. Conversion. Now, for many people, conversion simply means changing from one thing to another. It means that you stop driving one kind of car and you start driving another. It means that you stop using PCs and start using Macs or vice versa. It means that you change over from one preference to another or maybe a favorite team becomes your new favorite team. People convert to different things. They change their mind. They change their preferences. They change their allegiances. And for many people, the same thing is true about religion. It's just something that you might change from one religion to another. Or perhaps from no religion to having a religion. But the Bible talks about something else when it talks about conversion. In fact, it's not merely a change of religion or just for people who change from non-religious to religious. But it is something that needs to take place for everybody. It's an entire change of heart. And everyone needs to be converted. Even people who have grown up in the church need to be converted. Because the things that conversion consists of are required of every person. And so it's not enough to say that I was born into a Christian heritage. It's not enough to say that I realize that Christianity is the proper way. Or I realize that Christianity kind of has the best way to get through life. No, something has to happen to your heart. Something has to happen in your heart. You must be converted. And if we as a church and as individuals are going to do ministry faithfully, and if we're going to accomplish what God has instructed us to do, then we need to understand the nature of that conversion according to the Bible. What is it? How does it happen? What does it bring about? And what does that mean for our ministry? And so I want to show you this morning four critical truths about biblical conversion. 
four critical truths about biblical conversion. And you need to understand what these are if you're going to do ministry faithfully. And I'll just say that this is particularly so in the culture in which we live. I think you're going to see as we go through this morning that there are some things that are distinct in the biblical view of conversion from a lot of cultural and evangelical even assumptions. A lot of things that are different that the Bible says. And so the things that we may take for granted, we need to make sure that we are evaluating in light of Scripture. And I hope that this helps you to do that this morning. Now, I want to begin with this. The first truth about conversion is that conversion involves repentance and faith. Conversion involves or even consists of repentance and faith. Last week, we talked about the gospel and primarily talked about what the gospel's substance is, what happened in history. Jesus did these things. He came into the world. He died upon a cross. He bore the penalty for our sins, and he was raised from the dead. These are the facts of the gospel. And we also talk about the results of believing in the gospel, the results of rightly responding to the gospel, that you receive the forgiveness of sins and that you receive eternal life. But there is a necessary response on our part. And we talked about what those two things are. Namely, repentance and faith. These are the necessary human responses to the offer of salvation. And as I said last week, these are two sides of the same coin. They never come separate if either one is actually legitimate and genuine. No genuine faith will be unrepentant. And no genuine repentance will trust in its own self without putting trust in Christ instead. And so a biblical view of conversion, first and foremost, means that both of these things, turning from your sins and trusting in Christ, both of these things occur when a person comes to salvation. Many people only pick one or the other when they're telling people what they need to do to become a Christian or to go to heaven. Many people will For example, call upon someone to believe. They will tell them to believe. And by this, what they often mean is simply to believe the facts. You need to simply believe that you are a sinner. Perhaps you've heard this before. Admit you are a sinner. Believe that God offers to save you or believe that Jesus died for your sins and then confess these things to God. There is an act of simply affirming truth here that often stops short of actual faith and what that means. People are told to believe the facts. And this is what you end up with. People who live their entire life thinking they're a Christian because they believe in the truthfulness of something without actually entrusting themselves to it. Biblical faith then includes not only believing that these things are true, but also then seeking salvation. And you do this not by doing good works, but by calling upon the name of the Lord out of that faith. Romans 10 verse 9 says what? If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And he goes on to say, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. The kind of faith that truly believes the gospel is the kind that calls out and says, God, please save me. We don't simply say, yeah, I know that's true. We say, God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. So we call upon the name of the Lord. Saving faith abandons all self-trust. It abandons all self-righteousness. Faith abandons any attempt to earn favor before God. As Philippians 3, 9 says, Paul 
says, and may be found in him, that is in Christ, not having a righteousness from where? Of my own. Not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Our righteousness before God, our right standing before God, our sins being removed from a place of judgment before him. These are the things that come not because we do good works, not because we follow the law, but because we seek a righteousness that God gives as a gift. And it comes through our belief and our faith in him. And so biblical faith abandons any effort to prove ourselves worthy of God and instead casts itself upon the mercy of a gracious savior. But many people stop here and they say, you just need to believe. All you need to do is believe. And they ignore the many passages that tell people that they also must repent. They must turn from their sins. Conversion involves a faith that turns away from self-serving, self-seeking, self-worship, sinful conduct. And instead turns and submits to the lordship of Jesus Christ. It is a turn from sin to acknowledge that Christ is Lord. Once again, Romans 10 verse 13 says, For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. We must believe and confess that Jesus not just is the Savior, but he is the Lord. What does it mean to repent? It means you turn from sin to God. You repudiate your old way of living. You say, this is no way to live. You commit to a new way of living. You're like Zacchaeus, who turned from wrongdoing and said, I'm going to pay back whatever I have to. If I've done anything wrong, I'm going to make it right. And he was not forgiven of his sins because he made those things right. But his heart and his actions and his words reflected the heart of someone who had turned away from a sinful lifestyle and instead turned to righteousness. If you repent, you're like the Thessalonians who, according to 1 Thessalonians 1.9, turned to God from idols. And we may not be idol worshipers by nature in the strictest sense of the word, but we do have the things that we seek after, the life that we seek to live, even the things that we might worship outside of the one true God. And instead, we need to turn to serve a living and a true God. This is what it means to repent. So conversion involves both of these things. And we need to make sure that when we're telling people that they need to be changed, that they don't just need to have a change of heart in general toward Jesus, that they don't just accept that he is the way, that they don't just ask him to come into their heart, but that they actually believe the content of the message, they entrust themselves to the Savior, and they turn from their sin and begin to live a life for God. And at the moment when those things happen, not after five years of good works, not after 20 years of proving it out, not after trusting God for an entire lifetime, but at that moment when they make the turn and when they put their hope in Christ, at that moment a person is converted and God forgives their sins and they become one of his people. Now, along with this, just there is a second uh, truth briefly, which is, Conversion is necessary for salvation. It not only involves repentance and faith, but it is necessary for salvation. And I've already alluded to this uh, by just speaking from John chapter 3, but there are a couple of other passages that I want you to note. First of all, in Ephesians chapter 2, we find what it is that we are actually converted from. We are converted from spiritual deadness. Spiritual deadness. Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 3 and you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, 
according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. You note here, of course, that this is not an actual physical death that he is referring to at the moment, because in verse 3 he says that we lived in the lusts of our flesh. People feel, in many ways, very much alive when they're living in sin. They feel like they're living it up. They feel like this is the life. And yet what Paul says is that when we live in that way, it's reflecting the fact that spiritually speaking before God, we are dead. We have no spiritual life. And we need God to do what he did physically to Jesus. Only in our case, we need it to be done spiritually, to raise us up and resurrect us. And that's exactly what it says that he did in verse 5. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We are converted from spiritual deadness. So we need to be saved. We need to be converted because otherwise we are dead in our trespasses and sins. And we are unable to do anything that God wants. And this is also then spoken of in Romans chapter 8 in verses 5 through 8. It tells us about what the state is of the natural man. Romans 8 verse 5. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the Spirit is life and peace. Literally there, describing the way that the flesh thinks, the way that the Spirit thinks, the mindset. Actually, if you want to do this a little more literally, it is the approach to life, the mentality. How does the flesh think? It thinks in terms of death. How does the spirit think? It thinks in terms of life and peace. The outcome of that is corresponding to what each one is. Verse 7, because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God. For look at this, it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. In addition to needing our sins forgiven... There is no way we can do anything that pleases God apart from this. If we are in the flesh, we cannot please God. So our need for salvation, our need for conversion is necessary because we are spiritually dead and we have a spiritual inability. We can't do what pleases God. So we need to be forgiven and we need to be transformed. Well, you say, what do we do then? Let's just start doing good things. Well, it's not that simple, is it? We can't. We're in the flesh. We can't please God. We're dead in our sins. We can't make ourselves alive. We need something to happen. And that something then is conversion. But the question is, how does it come about? And the Bible tells us that there is a necessary response on our part. However, there's a fundamental truth to understand that helps frame the way that we think about doing ministry. And that is that God brings about conversion. God brings about conversion. This is the third critical truth. Conversion involves repentance and faith. We must respond. And conversion is necessary for salvation. So how does it happen? Well, God brings it about. You say, doesn't that mean that we're not involved then? Well, no. In fact, the Bible is very clear. We've already found that we must respond to the gospel. 
we respond to the gospel. We have to repent and believe. In Acts chapter 20, Paul says in verse 21 that he solemnly testified to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if that were not the responsibility of Jews and Greeks to do that, why would he go and spend all of this sacrificial effort to go and tell them that that's what they needed to do? In John 3.16, we find that whoever believes in the Son of God will not perish but have eternal life. We need to believe and we need to repent. We must respond to the gospel. And the responsibility for doing this is upon us. No one else will do this for us. No parent, no friend, no pastor, no one else can respond to the gospel on our behalf. We are all individually responsible and obligated to do this. We have to. However, there is a simple fact that we will not do this on our own accord. If left to ourselves... Even though we're responsible, and even though we're told what to do, we simply will not respond to the gospel, even if we've heard it. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4 with me. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul says this starting in verse 1. He says, Therefore... Since we have, have this ministry, as we received mercy, we do not lose heart. Why would you lose heart, Paul? You're suffering like crazy. Well, of course you might be tempted to lose heart, but we don't. Since we have this glorious ministry of the Spirit of God, the new covenant ministry of the gospel. He says, but we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. We are setting forth the truth. We're making it clear. We're making it plain. We are putting it out in front of people. We're not hiding anything. We're not changing anything. We're not trying to trick anyone. We put the truth forth in a way that is clear and understandable and able to be responded to in as far as it goes. And yet, what does he say in verse 3 and 4? And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. There are people that cannot see the gospel. They can hear it with their ears. They can see the words on the page. But there is a type of seeing it and grasping it and understanding it that eludes them. They just don't get it. You know what this is like, right? You tell someone the gospel and it's clear as day and it's as if it just doesn't compute. And they might even recognize that they need to have some kind of religion. They might understand that they're guilty of their sins. They might understand the authority of the Bible and affirm all of those things. And yet, for whatever reason, when it comes to the gospel, they're just not grasping it. It just doesn't click. What's going on? The gospel is veiled. Those who are perishing, for them, the gospel is hidden from them. Not because God hides it, and not because the message is unclear, and not because it hasn't been told to them, but because of something else. Verse 4, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. Who is this referring to? But Satan himself. So that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Satan has blinded the minds of unbelieving people. And therefore, there's going to be a whole lot more required to get people to believe the gospel than our own cleverness and our own workarounds to try to overcome the natural resistance to the gospel. 
on the other side of the equation, for someone hearing, there is more that is necessary than mere hearing for a person to have the capacity to respond rightly to the gospel. There is more necessary than the natural man has the ability to do. The responsibility lies with him, and in a certain sense, he's not to concern himself with these matters about what's going on behind the scene and the spiritual condition. And people do use this as an excuse to be sure. Satan is confusing me. Satan is tempting me to this, or God has not allowed me to do this, or I don't have the ability to believe the gospel, and so I won't. And all of these, of course, are cop-outs, excuses, things that people use to justify rejecting the gospel. But nonetheless, we know that there is a spiritual obstacle, which is that very spiritual deadness that we talked about in Ephesians 3, excuse me, Ephesians 2. It is the spiritual blindness that goes on in the mind of every natural man whom Satan has blinded. So if this is the case, how is this even going to be possible that someone would respond to our gospel preaching? We are up against Satan How strong do we think we are compared to him? And yet, thankfully, it doesn't depend upon our power. Why do we who believe respond to the gospel? How does it come about that a person responds to the gospel? Well, this is where people start to go down one of two very divergent paths. There are some people who think that God gives the gospel and sends people to preach it, but that the rest is entirely up to the one who hears it. And they think that God would never dare to intrude upon such a process because that would interfere with the most precious thing that God has given to man, namely his free choices, his free will. And that God would never ever involve himself in influencing that in any kind of effective way. And therefore, though the gospel is from God, he doesn't involve himself in the response. He simply waits for us to make a decision and then... He acts once we respond. Then, when we believe, then he starts to do things. But there is a moment of neutrality on God's part where he leaves people to make this decision for themselves and believes that they can. But what does the Bible say? It says that we do, in fact, respond to the gospel. We do indeed have a responsibility to do it. And when the gospel response happens, it is not simply God doing it for us. It is us responding. And yet we do this, don't miss this, because God brings about our response. It is a real response. It is real repentance. It is real faith. It is an actual act of our will. And yet this happens because God is making sure that this happens, bringing it about. God that is to say, is the source of our conversion. And we'll just walk through a few passages to talk about this. In John chapter 1, verses 11 to 13, speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, it says, He came to his own, those who were his own did not receive him, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. There's our responsibility. We must believe. But he goes on and says, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. He doesn't simply say that they were not born of man. He says they were not born of the will of man. They were born of God. God made this happen. In John 6, 44, Jesus is disputing with the Jews who were unhappy with some things he was saying, common occurrence during his life. 
And he says these words, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. No one has the ability. This is not about permission. This is not Jesus standing in front of the gate that everyone wants to come through and saying, no, only you are allowed to come and only you are allowed to come. Jesus is saying, no one has the ability to come to me. No one will respond to me in saving faith unless the Father who sent me draws him. You say, well, that's great. Well, can't God draw more people than actually come? Well, in theory, if that were the only thing here, then that would be true, that God can draw people in the way that's described here, and then only a select few would come of their own volition out of that drawing, that kind of initial help. But what does he go on to say? I will raise him up on the last day. And the him stands directly here in correspondence when he says, I will raise him up on the last day, it's the same person who is drawn by the Father. In other words, all that the Father draws will also find themselves receiving eternal life, being raised up on the last day. What does that mean happened in the meantime? It means that they were saved in between the time when God drew them and when they were brought to final resurrection, eternal life. This means that all that the Father draws, according to John 6, are saved. And everyone that the Father draws in this particular way are saved. And no one can come to the Father unless that saving work of drawing them to him comes about. Therefore, God is the source of our conversion. Look over with me, if you will, in Acts chapter 16. In Acts 16, Paul has been summoned over to Macedonia... He was in Asia Minor seeking to preach the gospel, and uh, he was not permitted to do so. The Spirit of God explicitly forbade them from that in Acts 16, 7. So they go over to Macedonia, and they come to Philippi, Acts 16, 12. From there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony. We were staying in the city for some days And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to a riverside where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer. We sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening. And look what happens. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. The Lord opened her heart to respond Did she respond to the things spoken by Paul? Absolutely she did. No ability to say that I'm not responsible. No looking at this and saying that God just simply did this for her outside of her will. She responded. She truly did. And yet why did it happen? Because God opened her heart to do so. This is what happens when people believe the gospel. What is going on behind the scenes is not visible to us. We can't feel God opening our heart to the truth that we hear. We don't see what is invisible and we don't know what the Bible tells us later on as we understand what's happening, as we seek information to understand how this happened. We don't know that this is what's going on at the time. All we know is that we respond and that we believe. And yet when we look at what God says or kind of the machinations behind the scenes, we see that he is doing this and he is bringing this about. This is why we respond. Over in Romans chapter 9, in the next book over, 
verse 14, 15, and 16. What shall we say then? There's no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Who gets mercy? Who is saved and forgiven? It's the one that God decides to do that upon. And he makes it even more explicit in verse 16. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs. That's that's decision, that's effort. Neither one of those are the determining factor, even though the will does then get involved. What does it depend upon? God who has mercy. God makes us alive in Christ by his mercy. Flip over the next book in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians 1. An amazing chapter on the power of the gospel. Just incredible. In verse 26, Paul is trying to make a point to the Corinthians that they're nothing special. We should learn a lesson from this. It's not really because of any kind of impressiveness that we would become God's people, even though God is more impressive than anyone else. But in fact, he tells the Corinthians that God kind of deliberately chose from a lesser group, societally speaking, in order to accomplish something. Verse 26, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen. The things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are. By the way, all kinds of people thinking that we've just got to get this famous person saved. We've just got to get this influential person saved. You know, if that guy was saved, he could really do a work for the gospel. And Paul says... Not really. That's not the way God does things. Oh, praise God, if he does save a a famous person, we should want them to be saved just as much as someone else. And there may be particular unique ways that God would choose to use someone like that, but that's not what God's all about. He doesn't look at impressive human beings and say, I need that guy. That's not what he does. In fact, he intentionally, generally goes the other direction. And the reason is, verse 29 So that no man may boast before God. What's the idea? God deliberately selected a cross-section of the lesser societal standing people so that people wouldn't look and say, oh, you know what? Christians come mostly from the elites. You know, Christians come from the people who are up there in society. Christians come from the impressive people. And uh, God must need them, you know? Or God must like them. Or he needs to work through people who, are, who have the, you know, can pull the strings. And Paul says no. In fact, God doesn't need that at all. He says he's chosen these particular types of people so that no man may boast before God. And now look what he says in verse 30. This is the key for what we're speaking of this morning. But by his doing. Literally, of him. From God, you are in Christ Jesus. Why are you in Christ Jesus? It is God's doing. Not because you are greater, not because of anything here, but you are in Christ Jesus because of this. And notice he doesn't say that the gospel came to you because of this, but the reason why you're actually in Christ Jesus, having believed, the reason why you got there into this state of salvation is because of God's work. And God did this deliberately, verse 31, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. God does the work so that he gets the credit. 
That's why it's vital for us to understand this so that we give him proper credit for the work. I read earlier from 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I'll go on in verses 5 and 6 of that chapter. We read that our gospel is veiled to some. But what does he say in verse 6 of 2 Corinthians 4? For God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Now notice here, this is a distinction not between people who have heard the gospel and who have not. This is a distinction among those who have heard the gospel. You understand this? Because he already said that they set forth the truth, verse 2, and he says that our gospel is veiled to some, but there are others who have received this activity that's described in verse 6. So there are, there's one group who has heard the gospel, and out of that group, some of their minds remain blinded, even though they've heard the gospel, but the rest have had the light of God shown into their hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. What's he describing? He's describing what happens when people not only have heard the gospel, but when God makes sure they understand it in a saving way. That is what it means to shine into our heart in this way. Ephesians 2 verse 10 says, We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Philippians 1.6 says that God began a good work in us. 1 Peter 1.3 says that God caused us to be born again. James 1.18 says, In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. What do we take away from this? What we take away is we believe and we repent. We need to turn to Christ. We need to embrace God's saving offer, but God is behind the gospel response such that even though we really do that, God is the one who has exercised his will to make sure that it happens. God starts the work of salvation in us. God is the one who changes our heart, and he really does change our heart. The implications of this for our ministry, we can do everything perfectly as a church. Everything perfectly as individuals. Lay out the gospel as clear as day. Selfless, godly, perfect people in theory. And yet, we can't make a single soul turn to Christ. We're utterly dependent upon God. And yet, it's not as if we're just out there fighting against God and as if God doesn't want to save people. God is able to overcome all objections to his message and he is eager to see people saved. And so he works on the hardest of hearts. We don't write off anyone is too far gone to be saved. And we preach the gospel not with pessimism, even though many or perhaps even most won't believe, but with optimism because we know that we have the power of God in the gospel, and we have a God who powerfully works to bring about a response to the gospel in anyone that he desires. What flows from this, by the way, truth number four, conversion not only is a work of God, but, I mean, it's clear what follows from this, isn't it? If it's a work of God, what does it do to us? Conversion changes the heart. It's not simply that you're aligned with someone else or that you're in a new position or now you go to church and you didn't used to or you're kind of pumped up to live a better life. Conversion actually changes the heart. Conversion transforms the heart. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a changed mind creature. Of course, it doesn't say that. What does it say? If anyone is in Christ, he is a 
new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Colossians 3.10 tells us there is a new man who has been created after the image of the one who created him. So we, if we are a Christian, have an entirely new heart. Now we still dwell in the flesh. So we still fight against the flesh. We still sin. We have not been entirely renewed. We need to be glorified. And so we still fight against certain things. And yet there is something fundamentally different. What therefore is true about Christians if their heart has been changed? Well, we are willing to hear the word of God. And therefore we're able to understand the word of God. 1 Thessalonians 2.13 says the Thessalonians received the word of God not as the word of men but for what it really is the word of God which also performs its work in you who believe and we can understand the scriptures because second corinthians excuse me first corinthians 2:15 says he who is spiritual that is has the spirit of God whoever's a christian appraises all things we have the mind of Christ he says Christians are changed to be able to understand the word of God. They want the word of God. They love other Christians. 1 Thessalonians 4.9 says that you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And if you're born again, this changes your life. It changes your desires. It changes what you want to do. It changes your convictions. It makes you an entirely different person. Now, again, we see that played out over time. But the point is there's a fundamental change of direction. And if we don't understand this, then we're going to misunderstand what it means as far as the expectations that we place upon ourselves and upon others when they come to Christ. Now, let me just give you a few results as we close of a biblical view of conversion. What are a few takeaways, a few implications of this? Um, First, let me tell you what it doesn't mean. This does not mean, if we understand that God works in conversion, that we cannot ultimately make this happen ourselves that it's not in our power to do this but it's ultimately God's power this doesn't mean that we don't try hard to convince people of the truth of the gospel this does not mean that Paul said in 2nd Corinthians 5 knowing the fear of the Lord we persuade men all too often we hear people say well you just kind of put the truth out there and hope that people come to it The Bible doesn't know anything about just a general setting of truth on the table without an accompanying attempt to persuade people that it's true, to urge people to believe it. We don't just kind of leave it on the floor and hope someone stumbles across it. We tell them the truth and say, you need to believe this, and here's why. In Acts 26, King Agrippa caught on to Paul's efforts and said, hey, in a short time, you would persuade me to be a Christian. And Paul says, you got me. I would wish that you were just like me except for these chains. We ought to use persuasive and compelling reasoning to win people to Christ. Paul reasoned with the Jews from the scripture. He reasoned with, in Athens, with those who were in the marketplace and with the philosophers on the Areopagus. He tried to convince people that what he's saying was true. And so when we understand that God saves people on the basis of this message, this does not mean that we don't try to convince them it also doesn't mean that we don't try to convince them or that we don't care whether they believe it all too often we resort to the sovereignty of God as a kind of cover for our own spiritual apathy and we say you know God's going to save who he's going to save there's an aroma of death to death and life to life and second Corinthians 2 and whoever he saves is kind of fine with us because that's his decision Paul said that he is weeping over his fellow countrymen, the Israelites, and he would even trade places with them if possible, if they would repent, and he could be accursed. 
That's how much he cared. We ought to care more than anything about the state of the unbelieving in the world. Don't let your understanding that God is involved in conversion make you apathetic. Instead, make it tell you how much it actually means that God would be involved in this. And then, of course, as I've said already, this does not mean, when we understand God's role in conversion, it does not mean that we did not, if we're Christians, or if we're not Christians, that we must not actually believe ourselves. Scripture is very clear that all believers really did exercise their will. All people who are Christians really did believe. And if you're not a Christian, you can't say, well, I don't have the power to do that. How do you know that God is not going to work? You don't know those things. This is presumption. The responsibility is repent and trust the gospel. However, we do give credit to God for this because if we did believe, and if we do believe, it's because God worked and we give him grace, we give him thanks for the grace that he's given us. Well, that's what it doesn't mean. What does it mean if we understand God's involvement? It means that we preach the gospel because God uses it to save people. We know that he doesn't just zap people and save them apart from the gospel. He uses the word of God. James 1.18 says, in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth, how? By the word of truth. In 1 Peter 1 Verses 24 and 25, it says, You have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and enduring word of God. And Paul goes on to say, excuse me, Peter, this is the word which was preached to you. And again, in Acts 16, the Lord didn't simply open Lydia's heart to the gospel. He sent a gospel preacher, and it says that the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. We have to preach the gospel because that's the way that God has chosen to save people. Next, we trust God to use his gospel to save people. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul says when he came to Corinth, he didn't come with superiority of speech or of wisdom proclaiming the testimony of God. Why did he do things the way he did? Because in 1 Corinthians 2, 5, he had this intention. So that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. There are a lot of people today in the world thinking they have believed the gospel of Christ, but their faith is resting in some kind of wisdom of men. They're trusting in something that someone added or took away to make the gospel more appealing, more compelling. And they might be converted to something, but is it Jesus Christ? Is it his gospel? We can't and should not add anything that would make the gospel more appealing in our perception. We don't give clever sales pitches or anything like that. We don't want their faith in us. We want it in Christ. Paul understood that if he changed the message or did it in a way that was meant to persuade people above the content itself, then he would make their faith on an unstable ground that would ultimately be exposed on the last day. So we don't add anything that we think would be an objection or that we think people would want. We don't remove anything that we think would cause people to reject it. But we do, as 2 Corinthians 4, 2 says, we manifest the truth. Nothing more, nothing less. And we urge people 
to believe it. As a church, if God is at work in conversion, we expect people who call themselves Christians to act like Christians. This is the basis why we would even call, hold people accountable in the first place. If God doesn't change a person's heart, what expectation do we have that they would be able to do any different than in their unregenerate state? So how unfair would it be to hold someone to account for their sin if they weren't able to do anything about it? But because they are a new man, then we have a higher standard for Christians that we call them to. Everyone is accountable to God, but Christians are accountable in a particular way to live a life that is in line with the new life that they now live. The body of Christ, therefore, consists of people who have had their heart changed in true conversion. This is why we practice regenerate membership, membership of people who are born again. We're skeptical of claims of Christianity that don't change a person's life in some meaningful way. And then, of course, the crowning ramification is we don't give credit to man. And we don't credit ourselves for people believing the gospel. If we did things a certain way where we were the ones that came up with the packaging, the material, and the content, well, then maybe we would get the credit when a lot of people came and seemed to believe what we're saying. But because the gospel is what it is and because God is the one who saves, we give God the credit. Paul thanked God in 1 Thessalonians 1 because he knew his choice of the Thessalonians, which was evident by the way they responded to the gospel. He gives thanks to God because God called them through the gospel in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And we should do the same. We should be humble before God and we should be grateful for everyone who comes to faith in Christ, even our own selves, when we know that it is God who does that work. Well, let's join in prayer together and praise God for the work that he does God, thank you for saving us. Thank you for the conversion that you bring about. You've told us that we would never do it on our own. And we know this is true. Thank you for bringing about our salvation, not just the way of salvation in Christ, but opening our heart to receive the truth of God. We pray that our hearts might be all the more open and all the more soft before your word all our days. Pray in Jesus' name, amen.